The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Eric McNulty, leader of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard and crisis management expert, who's worked on responses to the Boston City Marathon bombing, Hurricane Sandy in New York, and the political and professional interface for Deepwater Horizon, the oil spillage disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, currently we're facing a lot of challenges. The spread of the coronavirus, the World Health Organization taking it to pandemic level status, the shutdown and closure of many schools, businesses, the move towards remote work. We're facing a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty. I thought there was never a better time to invite Eric onto the show to share some of the lessons he's learned and had to unlearn while facing high pressure, high consequence situations when we have to make decisions, but with awareness of the first, second, and third order effects of our decisions. Now, you may wonder, how does someone get into crisis management? It feels like a very specialized field, but if anything, counterintuitively, Eric is actually a generalist. And I started my career in retail in New York at Bloomingdale's working for the legendary CEO Marvin Traub, where I learned all about experiences and the importance that people place on having unique experiences. I spent time in corporate communications for a number of years and then worked at Harvard as uh, helping them start and run a conference business where I got there. Spent about eight years getting paid to go to informal graduate school, working with people like Christensen and Warren Bennis and Gary Hamill and others. I learned a lot about how people think, how organizations work. And part of that, I actually, it's interesting, I met the two gentlemen I work with now because I hired them to speak at a business planning for pandemic conference. Uh, <laughs> How timely is that? How timely is that? Exactly. But it speaks to where I am now and why I do what I do. Well, people thought I was a bit odd at the time because when I put on that conference, yes, a piece of it was around the scientific bit and the healthcare, the sort of nuts and bolts of pandemic and how do you think about it in business continuity. But I also had an ethicist there to talk about what are sort of the moral and ethical issues you might have to come up and make decisions around. Barry Dorn and Lenny Marcus, who I work with now, Barry's retired, but Lenny and I work together. I brought them in because their expertise was in negotiation and conflict resolution. Because again, I thought in the pandemic, you're going to have lots of different stakeholders, lots of stresses on the system. How do you actually resolve conflict in a productive way? And it turned out that the other work that they did was in this area of crisis leadership and crisis response. And I joined them in 2008 and began looking at sort of what really makes leaders tick. It's not a specialty, it's a generalism. The people who are really good at this, they understand psychology, they understand group dynamics, they understand strategy, they understand a whole bunch of different disciplines and can weave them together. And so this odd mix of experiences I had over the years exposed me to a lot of different pieces that I could then bring together in helping figure this out. And also when I fight deploying in the field with someone, the kind of observation I make or the or I look at for a disaster response center after say a tornado or an earthquake, you walk into it and say, what's this experience like? I've got my Bloomingdale's hat on from many years ago 
looking and saying, how is this set up? Is the flow good? Are people being taken care of? All those kind of things that a lot of the people who actually do that work never think of. <laughs> you know, it's odd. Well, it's fascinating to me, right? I think, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, journeys people go on, right? Like so much of our, the notion is that we have to develop specialty in so many areas. But what's interesting, as I hear you're sharing this, is there's a specialty, first of all, of recognizing how to bring cross-functional groups together and recognizing all the skills that you need in a crisis. Um, So what are some of maybe the sort of counterintuitive aspects of crises? Like how do they need to be handled differently? Because when people think of crisis, you know, they're probably thinking, oh, well, the web server's gone down or (laughs) I can't get um, the product that I want in the store locally. What are some of the things that you've learned that maybe you thought originally would be the way it was, but it actually was the opposite to that? I think much of it is a direct answer to your question, but I have found that the people who are really good in true crises, and again, it's not that the web server is down or that the next edition of your product is late getting into the port, but the true mega events, be they corporate or be they like now the coronavirus, the people who are really good at this, are they're really good at seeing three-dimensional patterns. So they see the connections between the different aspects of what's going on, but not just on the surface, they can look more deeply and see what's the impact on a whole range of stakeholders. And so those who just tackle the obvious, they get some of the things right, that's great, but then they usually get blindsided by some other things because they weren't thinking about, okay, we're going to put every university in the United States and probably worldwide now is in high schools are all going to go online. Well, what are the stressors to the communications infrastructure? Do we actually have the bandwidth to handle that right now? Because we've made these decisions with no preparation. So much like your world of innovation, the people I think who who innovate really well, they see patterns that other people miss. They can look and see here's what's missing, or they can make connections between different domains and then come up with something new. So it's that ability to see patterns and also to see them with, with some depth that makes people really good at this. And they're in essence problem solvers. And they just keep seeing one more problem to solve, one more problem to solve. They don't get panicked. They don't freak out. It's like, let's solve this problem. Let's get the right people in the room, bring the right expertise together, mix it up, and just keep solving problems. That's so funny. As soon as you say that, I'm brought back to one of my favorite books, The Martian. And the thing, the great line in it is, it's all about solving problems. And if you solve enough problems, you get to go home. And I I, I, I love that from, from that book. But there's a lot to be said about that, because I think the bit I'm extrapolating from what you're saying there is, I think there's a lot to be said for people who can recognize first and second order effects of decisions that they're making. I think a lot of people, when we're time poor, when we're short on information, we do sometimes optimize for this, like the problem right in front of our nose and the the activity feel like progress. But what's the consequence of that decision, both the first order and second order effect? So it's interesting when you use that example of, right, let's just close all the schools and go online. You know, it sounds like a noble decision, but like, do we actually have the capacity to serve those people? Can we actually help them? Will we have the bandwidth infrastructure in place? I think that's really interesting. And is there any methods or tools that when you're looking at these types of scenario planning, like what are you the kind of things that you're thinking about and the questions that may be asked to help surface some of those potential obstacles that might be blind sites initially? Well, one of the things that we 
talk about this in the book that I wrote that came out this summer, You're It. It's something called a situation connectivity map. And the idea came from my then student, now colleague, Peter Neffinger, who was a one of the people who was in charge of the Gulf, uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill response. And I spent some time with him in the Gulf during that incident. He shared with us that when he first got to New Orleans, he thought his job was to help plug an oil well. And it took him about three days to realize his real job was managing the political consequences of trying to plug an oil well. There are plenty of specialists who are trying to actually do the technical work. And so we built this tool called the Situation Connectivity Map that says, okay, something, you've got a problem you're trying to solve or something has happened. That's in the middle. That's your technical event, we call it. But then put around that, what are all the other secondary situations that are going to arise? So you think about that oil spill. There was the political situation. There was a media situation. There was a business continuity situation. There was an economic viability situation for the communities affected. All of a sudden, you build out there are 15, 20, 25 related situation. Then you look and say, so how are they connected? And you begin to draw the arrows that what the politicians see on the media when they're watching CNN or whatever, that affects how they perceive what's going on. So you've got to be prepared to react to not just what you see on the ground, but what they're seeing in the media. And you begin to connect these dots. And then you get a much richer picture to see, oh, let's make sure we're thinking about the mental health of the population, for example, which is not in any of the plans. But if you're going to put people out of work for a long period of time, you're going to have to deal with that. And it's the same thing in a business situation. Again, think of that, okay, you think you're solving for problem X, but around that are different stakeholders, different aspects of that. And the extent you can map them, even informally with a pen on a piece of paper, and to say, what's going to play out from this? How are they connected? Who are the stakeholders? Then you begin to really figure out where you need to put your attention. I think that's such a really helpful meaningful example for many people. It's interesting. So at the moment, one of my clients is a a major bank. So the coronavirus is starting to ramp up here in the US and businesses are being asked to close, maybe small businesses, right? So people aren't in restaurants, people aren't in their local yoga studio, people aren't in... So we're looking at these small businesses. Now, the government has said that they're going to give these small business loans out. They're going to try and make that process as easy as possible. But in most of these large institutions, you're talking like weeks or months before that process can even be completed. So it's very interesting to start to see these decisions, like when we have to close down public gatherings, how that impact starts to impact small businesses, then it starts to impact the commercial entities about trying to even serve the government's intended policies of making cash readily available to help these businesses survive but also just the processes that are in place and often not really exercised at any sort of scale, never mind just on a daily basis, and trying to bring those to life and the impacts it's having has been really intriguing for me. So as you were talking about that idea of mapping this technical event and starting to point arrows about what's the effect of that and how could that trickle on to other areas of business is really interesting it's sort of percolating in my head now because I'm seeing this really come to life and how can we build and create small, innovative, little products that are going to serve that market in a short period of time? And we're not going to be able to serve anyone. We have to take a risk-based approach, right? Like, can we serve right. 10% of the market like very well and have a bigger impact on a certain segment of society? So it's fascinating to hear you share. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind is 
several years ago, I had the chance to interview Adrian Slowatsky, who was a big thinker at Mercer Consulting. One of the things he said to me was, he said, imagine a, a line between the internal functions of an organization and the external world it serves. And he said, and the rate of change on the external side of that wall is always faster than the rate of change internally. And most of the time, that's okay. You don't have to change the way you process invoices, let's say, as fast as the way your customers are changing the products they're buying. But the situation you just described, you've got a very slow bureaucratic process that's going to try to address a very fast-moving need. And the small business people are going to be out of business by the time the folks with all good intention trying to spin up a way to help them out. And it is trying to match up the pace of both sides of that wall and get them in sync is really tough. And it is a great space for some innovative solutions if some people will step in with resource and say, hey, here's how we can do it and think about it differently. And another story that comes to mind is way back to Hurricane Katrina. There was a bank, I think it was Hamilton Community Bank, or I may have gotten the name wrong, but they were a community bank. And they served the less affluent areas of, of New Orleans. And after that horrible storm, they said, you know, okay, we're a community bank. We have to serve these people. How are we going to do it? And they basically took the cash they had in, in the vault. They set up a table in front of where the bank used to be. And they gave out these sort of micro loans, two, $300. And all you had to do was print and sign your name. And most bankers would look at it and say, you're crazy. You're just passing out cash. You're never going to get it again. That's nice, but it's philanthropy. It's not business. Well, they actually had a 98% repayment rate because they stepped in, they moved, they actually served the need, and they trusted people. I mean, they were designing from a position of trust, saying, you're our community, we expect you to trust us, we need to trust you, we're not giving you $100,000, we're giving you a couple hundred, but they had a 98% repayment rate. And so as we get stuck in all these bureaucratic wheels, maybe we ought to be looking at for some of these small businesses where a relatively small loan will make a big difference. Let's just get it in their hands as quickly as possible. How do we make the minimal process possible to know where it went? But beyond that, get it out where it could do some good because if they go out of business, there's yet more cascading effects. And it's such a great example. And yet for many people, it feels counterintuitive. One of these moments for me, I think, especially when you're in a time of crisis, is that you really do learn a lot about companies and people, I find. Because I find like in these moments... It's actually a chance to strengthen your customer relationships, actually to build real loyalty and awareness yes. of what you're doing versus destroying it. When I think about that example now at Hamilton Bank, if I was one of those people in that situation and they're there to help me in times of need, that's true partnership over trying to count the pennies of what a transactional type relationships. And I think it's a real test of Often these values that companies write and stick up on the wall and expose. But now we're in situations where are people going to sort of live and role model those values that they say of customer centricity or but you know whatever their buzzword might be is, are they going to hold themselves accountable to that and live them versus uh, those who don't? And I think the one thing is clear that you know great customer engagement is it's active, it's long term, and people remember the interactions yes and remember how you made them feel at that time so that means you have this real opportunity here to make them feel positively or negatively about the situation and i think there's a lot to be said and what we will see and we'll learn about different companies and people we collaborate with in this sort of moment 
Absolutely. And I think I may have learned this from you or saw examples there from you and your work, is that most organizations are built to say no, right? There's always a lot of barriers that are very risk averse. And you don't often get rewarded by saying yes. If you say no and prevent something from, that might be good, but never let it go bad, the organization likes that. That makes you slow. It makes you not take chances. It makes you actually not innovate very effectively. And in situations like this, it prevents you from actually doing the right thing by your customer and deepening that relationship in ways. This is an, an enormous opportunity right now. Part of what I've been trying to push when I've been doing interviews and writing a bit about the response to the coronavirus is to say this is a time to be aspirational. As you said, just live into your values or how can our organization, our community, our congregation, whatever that entity is to which you belong, how can we be at our absolute best right now? What does that look like and how do we do it? Because if you're facing adversity, if you think about it, you want to come out stronger than you went into it. That to me is resilience. You're bouncing forward through adversity. You're not bouncing back. You're bouncing forward, getting better. So let's take the chance now to remake things. What are we going to be our best? Who needs what kind of support? How are we going to do this? Let's take a blowtorch to the red tape because we're all actually trying to move forward and again, serve customers, serve our communities. Let's be at our best. This is a great opportunity to make some changes because all those committees and other bodies that normally slow you down, they're not meeting. They're all trying to figure out how they're going to work from home. So let's be a bit aspirational right now and try and rise above the situation to get better and stronger. I really enjoy that question. How can we be at our best at this time? Straight away, as soon as you were saying that to me, it actually even inspired me in my own business to think about what more could I be doing? What could I be actually giving back? Like rather than sitting there going, oh, I've lost this opportunity or a conference I wanted to speak at is canceled. How can I flip that to feel like what more could I be doing to help, to give? And I really like that. That's a really great intent of how can we be in our best? Because I think, again, this is what's going to surprise many people is when you truly give people that empowerment. And what I mean by that is the mission of what's to be achieved and the responsibility for them to make decisions based on achieving that mission of doing our best. I think a lot of leaders and potentially managers are going to be surprised with how innovative their employees can be, how they will do the right thing. Like I said, a lot of these organizational systems have so little faith in employee or customer behavior that they put so many guardrails in place to try and avoid uncertainty or risk that it quashes all innovation and engagement and expression from employees. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that notion. Yeah, I think most people want to do the right thing. Most people do not want to treat their customers poorly or be part of an innovation process. They want to do the right thing. They want to be part of a good, positive team. Yet we don't trust them to do that. Now is the time. So how would we do this? One of my uh, people I, whose work I follow closely is Mike Beer. He's got a, actually a new book out, I think this month, Professor Emeritus at, at Harvard Business School. And he talks about how you build feedback loops in organizations to actually reduce the signal-to-noise ratio. And one of the things he has said is that people want to do the right thing. They just don't know either where to take that or how to do it without getting in trouble. And if you actually let them ask them, how could we do this better or what's wrong or what's inefficient in this process? What makes no sense? If they can do it in a way that's safe for them, they will tell you. The answer is right there. They're doing this work every day. They know what policies or procedures or protocols don't make any sense. Give them a chance to surface that and you'll find you've got an amazing abundance of ideas and initiative. 
I think it's fantastic. So yourself, you're always very kind to reference and notice other people, but I know you do also some pretty awesome work yourself. Is there some examples that spring to mind of your sort of recent engagements of specifically around crises and how people tackle them that come to mind? Yeah, there are so many. I am fortunate that I get to see people at their worst, but I get to see them at their best as well. And I was I actually was just on with a call prior to this one with someone I met during the response to Superstorm Sandy in New York. I was a self-deployed. She was there doing technology, sort of, but it was a whole group of self-deployed people who became this informal innovation team. FEMA had a couple of people who they designated as their wranglers of the informal folks. And they put this innovation team out and said, go do better things. Just don't break the law, but beyond that, do what you need to do. And again, like you said, it's amazing what you unleashed. Philippe Galit was one of them. I met several people. And they were finding ways to restore connectivity by building mesh networks. They were tapping into methods of water distribution that they had learned when responding to humanitarian crises in Africa. They never thought they'd be using it in New York City, but they were. And so, again, when given the space to innovate on the fly, they did, and they did it really well. The informal side. And then on the formal side, one of the stories I love to share is a large company in the energy sector that has the most amazing safety culture I have ever seen. Just by talking about caring about people, quite rigorously identify what's the greatest risk to the health and safety of their people. And then how do you get that as close to zero as possible? So when the number one cause of death was auto accidents, they put in place a whole number of policies, but one of them was failure to wear a seatbelt was a firing offense, first occurrence, whether you're a senior vice president or you're brand new whether it's your personal vehicle or a company vehicle. They still monitor month by month auto accidents and fatalities region by region around the world. And it has come way, way down. And they found that it was heart disease. Now, heart disease didn't really have much to do with the work they were doing, but they said, let's tackle heart disease. Let's talk about exercise. Let's talk about diet. Let's talk about all these things. And so it was a real commitment as a culture for a large global organization, a Fortune 100 company, to really say, we say people come first, that's our number one priority and number one value. How do we live into that? It gets back to how do we be our best at this? And so the ability to chronicle that, I've seen so much after the Boston Marathon bombing, people come together and work as seamlessly as I've ever seen in a disaster across organizations. Some people who trained together for years, some who just happened to be spectators and said, what can I do? How can I help? And being able to document that. And when you see how people can work really well together, it makes it easier to identify the barriers that every day keep us from not doing it so well. Well, this just it sort of all resonates for me massively. You know, when I think about your question of how can we be at our best, and, you know, often I think what inhibits us is so much of our time we're just spent solving what's right in front of us in our small little silos. And silos exist either inside companies and domains or whatever. But I think what's so interesting about a crisis is it sort of makes us like actually push up instead of just thinking about my local problem. We're thinking like at a global problem. It's like making us think really big. This is a big challenge that everybody can suddenly get behind. And I think what often happens in companies is we're so locally optimized that I end up competing with the department beside me because we have conflicting goals. But yes, and this causes poor collaboration. But I always think in that scenario, the thing to do is to actually push up and think bigger and say, well, 
what's a bigger challenge that we both can all get behind and achieve something greater together, I think is a really interesting pattern to think about in teams when you find that you're fighting with conflicting goals is rather than who's right or who's wrong, it's how can we think bigger on a shared mission or purpose and pursue that, which I think is an interesting kind of hack. So I'm trying to ask you, especially you're in these crisis situations. When you are in these situations, what are your first sort of influence, your spider senses that go off or the things that you're looking for about, first of all, to frame up the problem and then how to go about tackling it? I have to ask you. That's good because I think that one of the benefits of being a generalist and having come to this later in my career is I feel completely uninhibited about asking stupid questions. Sort of why are you doing that or what's supposed to happen next? And that's good because if people, having them explain that to me, that makes them also have to process why they're doing it that way or why certain things are happening. And oftentimes it makes sense, but also other times it'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm not quite sure why we're doing that. So let's do it differently. So the first questions that come to me are always what or who has suffered here and are they being taken care of? Are you getting to them quickly? Are you thinking about their true needs? Because I've seen this whole range of crises over these last dozen years. Often it's human suffering. Often it's the environment. It's animals. It's other non-human species. But to see who's suffering, who's been hurt here, and are we taking care of them? But then the second thing is, who should we have helping us who's not here? And again, I got this broader generalist mindset. I don't just think the fire folks think about the other fire people. The cops think about the other law enforcement people. And I'm thinking like, okay, who else ought to be here? That's why the Sandy thing made so much sense. You're bringing in the community. You're bringing in people who actually have local knowledge, who have relationships. Don't push them back. Bring them in. I'm always looking to see who's here, who's not here. Why aren't they here? Because where I see failure happen often is that one agency or one person will feel like they have to own it and control everything. And in a crisis, you can't control everything. Part of the definition of a crisis, it's beyond your control. So your goal has to be not control, but order. How do I create as much order here? So I know what's expected of me. You know what's expected of you. You know what to expect from me. And that order beyond your control means you make a different set of decisions. And you only impose control when it improves order. And you hold back on control when it's not. We know from studying complex adaptive systems that the more you try and control them, the more chaos you get. So you, you fail if you think you know, this virus going around right now is a perfect example. No one can control the virus. We can control some things like how many people can get together at a certain place, or we can control certain pieces of things. But overall, we're kind of at the mercy of this thing. You can't negotiate it with it. You can't threaten it. It doesn't respond to tweets. Um, <laughs> uh, look, this is, but you want to create... Right. But you want to create some orders. People know, again, what's expected of me in terms of social distancing and what I'm doing and what we're seeing play out where I think things are getting kind of crazy is that, as we spoke about earlier, decisions get made without someone thinking about the second and third level consequences. Okay, you're great. You're going to shut schools. That makes sense at one level. So who's staying home with the kids? If the parents stay home with the kids and having a paid sick leave, how do they pay the rent? And all those sort of cascading effects. And so understanding that, again, it's one of the things I look for when, I, when I'm in a crisis situation is what's around the corner? Are they thinking about this or not? And what could be sneaking up on people if their blinders are on that they'll miss? 
these are just like such great things, I think, for people to take away. You know, this, your notion of actually what I interpret as humility, like you know, going to people initially and asking them, like, treat me like I know nothing. I love that approach. I had Gib Biddle, who was the head of product for Netflix for many years, and that was one hack he used to always, always talks about. It's like bringing humility to the conversations, like what can I learn? Really powerful. But this notion of who's not here that we need, that I just think that's so classic example, right? Like this, it goes a little bit back to the silo mentality and people are so under pressure, there's executing. But that moment to step back and reflect who's not here. But this other notion, I think is so subtle, but so powerful of, um, we're here to get order, not control of, a, of chaos. And I think that's really subtle, but very powerful notion, for, I think, for people to understand. And I can see even more that idea of starting to map these, like what could be the second, third, fourth order effects of making snap decisions. If we make them too quickly, um, we could have some very negative unintended consequences. And that ability just to pause and reflect and to build maybe these maps and look at some of the scenarios, I think it's super actionable for people to think about. And when they are in those scenarios, it's, yes, we need to respond quickly, but if we just make decisions for decision stakes, we can actually cause more adverse problems. And having that moment to think about who needs to be here, what do we need to learn? How can we bring some order to this chaos? I think is super powerful uh, takeaways for people. Yeah, and that's why it's important if you're trying to lead in a situation like this to delegate as much as you can, sort of reserve those decisions, only those decisions for yourself that you absolutely have to make because that's how you create the space for yourself. If you're trying to micromanage, nobody likes a micromanager, but it's very easy to be caught up in doing in the immediacy, as you say, trying to solve what's right in front of your face. Your bandwidth gets very crowded. You've got to be able to trust the people around you to do what they're supposed to do to give yourself the space because you have to contemplate those bigger decisions and understand what are those potential unintended consequences because those will be the ones that'll come back and get you every time. Absolutely. No, awesome. Awesome. So I've got to ask you then looking ahead, right? We're at the moment, I joked before we started recording, you seem to be the oracle of what's going to happen next at the moment with uh, with coronavirus. I seem to read you say something and then literally, whether it's hours or days later, it seems to be happening at the moment. So what's helping you make those sort of forecasts there must be some sort of things or signals that you're looking for so how do you start to get to that point part of that is looking very broadly so again the things that i have said that seem to be the the oracle at delphi if you're looking around the corner what's coming next actually is pretty obvious so one of the things i think you're referencing was with a radio station in san francisco and they said should the warriors start thinking about playing without spectators well the I knew from hearing the conversations in the emergency management community and the public health community that limiting large gatherings is one of the first things you do in an infectious disease outbreak. So I know that's happening and that's coming. So I said to the reporter, yes, we're at the time we really ought to be taking that seriously and making a decision. And then boom, two days later it happened. And then just the other day I was asked, why has that happened here in Boston? And I said, it's time for the NBA to make a decision at a league level. And four hours later they did. That wasn't because they called me to ask my advice, but when you are opening that aperture and seeing, okay, who's thinking and talking about this? We've got medical professionals, public health, HR folks, trying to look, what are the signals, what are each of them talking about a bit? Because there's, there's bits of deep expertise that are going to pull forward and help inform this. It's just a matter of seeing what's already on the path and coming. 
And so, you know, I'm obviously far from perfect at these things, and I'm not going to make predictions, but you can see, you actually could pretty easy to see that a few days ago we were in a thousand people was a, was a mass gathering. Now more and more places are cutting it back to 500 or even 250. And so that's going to get smaller because we're, what we're always trying to do there is flatten the curve of case rise. So you don't want the healthcare system to get overwhelmed. And the fastest way for it to get overwhelmed is to have a lot of cases at once so you don't put people in places where they can spread. Now that has huge economic implications, obviously, and that's a whole different podcast, I think, to, to figure that piece out. The way I see signals and the way I go about my work is find interesting people in a number of fields and follow them. So when I'm looking on LinkedIn or Medium or other places, I'm following architects and ecologists and social thinkers and public health people and just people who I think are interesting thinkers, technologists, and see what they're talking about and then begin to connect the dots or see where things may be relevant. Even again, back to my old days at retail to see what's happening on the ground in terms of who's buying what and who's building the infrastructure to sell them what kind of things can we see happening here. And if you just, again, take it all day, take a little bit of time to step back and say, who am I not paying attention to? Who's not here on my radar that might help inform this? That you begin, it gets easier to see these signals. What are some of the things they can look at or start to collect? So when there is a chance to sit back and synthesize and reflect and take lesson learned to improve forward. What are some of the patterns you've seen that work well from your time with Katrina, Sandy, all these various different crises you've seen before? Well, in, in the middle of the crisis, one of the important things to do is think about what's most likely to happen. And the research shows about half of us are worst case thinkers. So we immediately go to doomsday in a crisis. And you want to know what the worst case is. You also be good to have somebody give you the best case, but try to frame it around what the evidence says is most likely to happen that's inherently more positive than the worst case. So you begin to look forward. And then the thing to do is, as you're looking at what's right now, ask yourself, okay, what's most likely to happen three hours, six hours, three days, six days, three months, that kind of thing. Build out to force yourself to look at the future consequences. If we do this now, what's likely to happen next? What's likely to happen next? You can force yourself to do that until it becomes second nature. Then I actually really encourage people to do some micro-journaling. People, I encourage people to do journaling anyway, to reflect back and say, when was I at my best today? When was I at my worst? What could have gone better? Big idea did I have? Made me happy? Those kind of things. But even in a crisis, you can do some micro-journaling. Just take some bullet points of a decision you made, always in a high-consequence decision. Write down what you knew at the moment so you have a way to reflect back somewhat objectively on why you did it. But just capture those insights in a few words so you can go back later and reflect on them. Because otherwise, things are moving so quickly, your brain won't retain it. You'll just forget those things, those insights you had along the way. So as much as we're in a high-tech world, a pen and a notebook is a really good thing to have in a crisis. That's such great advice. And definitely a practice that I'm certainly trying to improve is cataloging my decisions. And the information I had at the time that really resonated with me and something I think we could all improve is just when we made the decision, what did information do we have? The only way we can get better at making decisions is going back and looking at the ones we've made and how we made them and what information we use. And I think that's such a powerful technique for people to take away and, and really useful both in the days ahead and months ahead. So, Eric, it's always a real pleasure to speak with you. It's really enjoyable. I always learn tons of stuff and I 
find a whole other 20 more resources to go and dig up. So <laughs> thank you very much for making time during this obvious crisis. I'm sure you're busy as any of us, so I appreciate that. Well, Barry, thank you so much. I always learn talking with you as well. So let's just keep following each other and sharing resources. Anytime. Brilliant.